Yeah, so as uh, Clive said, we're going to hear from God's word and we're actually reading from Acts 20, 17 to 38. So I'll just give you a minute to get that. That's Acts 20, verses 17 to 38. Okay. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came from into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my work life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the tasks the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourself know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. It's the word of God. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for reading that, Mal, and for praying for us, Clive. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's the passage we'll be stepping through today, and uh, time permitting, we'll be having a question time straight after the sermon, so if you've got any questions that pop up, uh, you don't need to shout them out there and then, I know you want to, Mal, but you just, just text it through or hold till the end, it's alright, we'll get, we'll get to them, um, but that's, that's where we're heading today. I would like you to consider committing more than 10% of your income to the church. 
is there any way that you could formally volunteer eight hours a week here at Lake Mac, say for 40 weeks of the year? And will you sign up to teaching a kids' church class? The same group of kids uh, from leopard sharks right through to piranhas, about an, an eight year span. How do, you, how do you feel about that? How, how do you feel as you see that question jump up on the screen? Anyone wanting to jump out of their seat, fist pump the air and say, yeah, let's do it. Oh, I'm not seeing so much. Uh, the way we might if there was a raft of kids stuck on Lake Macquarie in a storm and I was giving an impassioned speech to see who will come in the tearing rain to risk their lives and save them. You think, yeah, you'd have a bunch of people say, yeah, let's do it. Or are you squirming? not wanting to meet my gaze. Maybe you feel a bit icky inside. The way I do when I stand up and ask those kind of questions, I go, oh, this, this feels a little bit icky. Why? why? Why do we feel, why do I feel uncomfortable asking these questions? And why do so many of us feel uncomfortable when being asked these questions? Uh, and when, when we compare that to how some Christians describe their passionate Christian experience, when we compare how we feel when we're asked to give a little bit more money to, well, say, Richard Wormbrand. That, that's, that's a more accurate photo of Richard, who we heard about in the kids' spot. Um, he, he had a horrendous period of imprisonment, especially his first one where there was a lot of solitary confinement. His second imprisonment, after he got sent back for keeping preaching, was he was systematically beaten. Uh, at one point, uh, they, they beat the soles of his feet uh, until all the skin and flesh uh, fell away, and then they beat him again on the soles of his feet the next day. Uh, but if you wonder why he was being beaten, well, here's his own words from his memoirs. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us. So... Everyone was happy. That's, that's how he writes about his experience. That's, that's the deal. He went, yeah, this is, this is a good price for the privilege of preaching. Or the Apostle Paul in today's passage uh, that, that Mal just read. Paul has already devoted his life to establishing churches. Uh, he's taken beatings for preaching the gospel, just like Richard. And in today's passage, he writes this. And now, compelled by the Spirit... I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. As we read about Richard and about Paul and what they say, do you, like me, get the impression that if I asked Richard or Paul these questions, they'd be on their feet cheering? Or, or maybe they'd be saying, Liam, why so low? Why such modest ambitions for the gospel? Well, in today's passage, which we just read, Paul is, is passing on the baton, so to speak. He's, he's making sure those he's leaving behind to take over the church in Ephesus really understand why it is that he's lived his life in the way that he has. 
uh, why they should consider living a life, the kind of life that Paul's lived. And as we work through this passage today, God, through Paul's words, will be doing the same to us. He'll be challenging us and, and helping us to see why we should consider the kind of devotion to the church that Paul expresses in his life, the kind of devotion that, that Richard lived out. And as we step through, we're going to see that the church of God is God's treasure. We're going to see that it's at risk. We are going to see Paul supply the solution and he's going to make a really strong case that the church is worth protecting. Uh, and then we'll come around to asking how we'll respond. We'll, we'll actually come back to those same questions that we started with and see how our hearts respond then. Uh, please join me as we pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Paul who served you and wrote these words so many years ago. We thank you for your servant Richard who lived out this attitude uh, and sought to encourage others to. And we pray that as we open this chapter in Acts chapter 20 today, that you will speak to us. I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly and faithfully. Uh, and I pray that you'd help all of us to, to have open hearts and minds, to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, challenged and rebuked where that's necessary too. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that Paul wants us to see in this chapter is that the church is God's treasure. See, what we just read was Paul giving his farewell speech to the church in Ephesus. Uh, this is the church he, he planted, uh, that he established, uh, that he's seen grow. Uh, he, he's got such strong affections for these people is that he, he doesn't even want to go to Ephesus. It says he, he didn't go to Ephesus because he didn't want to get caught up. You know, you go back to a place, you think, oh, if I go there, I've just got too many strong relationships. It'll be weeks till I can get away. That, that's the sense you get. So Paul's, he actually anchors off Ephesus at Miletus and, and says to the elders, the leaders, hey, come, come out to me. Uh, he's, he's about to leave behind um, this church so that he can go, go on to plant more churches. He's always got this ambition to go on and on and on to plant more churches. And now he's leaving behind this church and he says to these leaders, now I know that none of, you, uh, none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He makes it really clear, this is it guys. Uh, you, you know, I've been around, I've been back to visit, you've been able to get in contact with me when things come up. You know, so in a way they've been the under leaders and he's been the one they would look to when something came up and now he's saying, okay, you're never going to see me again. This is it. I'm not coming back to check in and see how you're going, to clean things up, to straighten things out. It's over to you now. He's entrusting it to them. Uh, he's giving them a responsibility. Well, what is the responsibility he's giving them? Verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He's talking about the church here, but look at how he describes the church. Not keep watch over the organisation that I established, the corporation. No, no, the, the flock. The, that, that's, 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 that's animal terms, sheep terms. This is my language, but it's, it's, he's talking about people. It's a, it's a word that says this is a real functioning group of people, not just a structure, not an organisation, the flock. And what's the value of the flock? See, when you go to buy something expensive, uh, you have to consider whether it's worth the price. 
now I've got some sheep and over the years that I've had sheep, my sheep have slowly got more expensive as they've become more valuable. And more recently, uh, Lucy reminds me, Do we, can you really justify spending that much money on a ram? Yeah, what she's asking me is, is it worth it? It's got this big price tag. It's not just a couple of hundred dollars anymore. Is it worth it? And and that's the question you have to weigh up. Uh, And maybe it's not for sheep for you. I'm assuming for many of you it is, that you're thinking, how much should I spend on my sheep? Uh, It's something else. But when it's not just spending 20 bucks on something, when it's a little bit more than that, maybe it's $1,000, maybe it's $2,000, $10,000, $800,000 for a modest one-bedroom apartment in Morissette. Well... When you're starting to consider how much will I spend and there's a big lump of value on it, a cost, you've got to ask, is it worth it? Do I value this thing to that extent? Do I value it that much? Well, what's the cost? What's the price tag on the church, the flock that God paid? His own blood. What a a tremendous verse. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. That, that, that was the price tag. That is how much God values his church. That was the price that he thought was worth paying. Now, we're talking about the cross here, where, where Jesus, God in human form, uh, took on himself our punishment. He bled and died and suffered the, the agonies of the eternal punishment deserved by every human. Why? Because that was the price that was demanded to save people. That was the purchase price for the church. That was the cost of redeeming a people for himself. That was the cost of forgiving a group of people like us and bringing us into his family. And God said, yeah, it's worth it. I will pay that price. I will value this church that much. That's the price that has been paid. And this isn't just an isolated little sentence that only comes up once in the Bible. Uh, It it comes throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. Have a look in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's on the screen there, the way God describes his people. He says, For you are a holy people, a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. That comes up three times just in Deuteronomy. And there's a huge swell of New Testament passages that pick up this theme. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. Uh, John 3, we sung it just before, didn't we? For God so loved the world that he gave us, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or John 13, 1, describing the night before Jesus goes to pay that price, just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me who gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, the church is described as a bride, a beautiful bride prepared for her husband, Jesus. 
And when, when Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, again, about how husbands ought to behave towards their wives, here's how he says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ, Jesus, loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's just a few. I could read for the next hour and they would all be the same. God loves you. God loves his church. And when someone is called into God's family, when someone starts following Jesus, they start being part of the church. They're called into a family. The Bible knows of no such thing as a Christian apart from the church. It's a, it's a one deal. You're invited into God's family. Not as an only child, but as one of many, co-heirs with Jesus. The church of God, we read, is made, is sustained and is bought with God's own blood. It is God's treasure. But this church, Paul writes, this church, God's treasure is at risk. Here's what he says to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. Now I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. See, God cares about truth. Did you pick that up? Truth matters. Truth matters because uh, the truth of the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, it, it either helps if it's right and accurate, it, it helps us know how to be saved, know who God is, know what it means to follow him, to find joy in Jesus. That's what the truth brings. Or the truth, if it is distorted, hurts. And, and it hurts terribly. See, when we think about these savage wolves that Paul describes, I think maybe we, we you know, pop into your mind some really wild, heretical teaching, maybe Joel Osteen or some clearly destructive teacher who's just thrown the Bible away and says, I'm just going to say what I want to say. It's not what God says, I'm saying what I want to say. But so often, distortion of the truth, it's not as flamboyant and obvious as that. Uh, it's usually a small, subtle detail that doesn't seem like it matters, but it sure does. And at best, at best, distortion of the truth hurts and harms faith. Distorting of the truth that, that God gives us in his word it causes people to lose their assurance and wonder, oh, am, I, am I really saved? That, that hurts. Causes people to lose their godliness, not value being holy. Causes people to lose a passion for mission, for reaching out with the good news of Jesus, for maturity, for growing in Jesus. It, it strips the Christian life of colour and, and depth, of a whole bunch of goodness. That's, that's at best what distortion of the truth does. At worst, well, we'll have a look. Here's a description of what it does at worst. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. 
if indeed we hold our initial conviction, the truth, firmly to the end? What happens if that truth, that conviction is distorted by these savage wolves at worst? Faith is gone. You're not trusting Jesus anymore. You're trusting something else. Or you're not following Jesus anymore because you're being told, yeah, yeah, you're fine. Live the way you want. That, that doesn't matter. But you're not actually following Jesus. At worst, you don't, you're not saved. A distortion of the truth hurts and harms and is deadly. That is the risk, Paul says. But there is a solution. And that's where he goes next in verse 20. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And then just skip down to verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Uh, this, is, this just shows us the solution that Paul gives to distortion of the truth. What's the solution? I've not hesitated to preach anything. Anything. It might, you might not like me for it. It might not be conducive with your lifestyle. You might not be very happy about it. But I have not hesitated to preach anything. Uh, he says, I taught you publicly and from house to house. Uh, you, say, you, you meet Paul uh, in the flesh. I reckon he, he's got his... He's got his letters with him. He's got a sermon ready to go. If it's a big group of people, we saw that at the riots in Ephesus, didn't there? There was a, there was a riot, thousands of people wanting to kill him, and he wanted to get there out in there and preach. But it wasn't just a big crowd. Paul preached to one or a hundred or a hundred thousand. It doesn't matter. House, publicly, um, anyone, I'll, I'll, uh, to Jews and Greeks, he says. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. I'm, I'm going to teach you. And then he ends in verse 27 with this statement, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. See, this is how Paul has been guarding the church in Ephesus. This is how he guards them. And now he says, I've been guarding you like this. I've been teaching, I've been proclaiming, I've been declaring everything, not just bits, everything. We don't miss anything out. And now, leaders of the church in Ephesus, it's up to you to guard others. I'm not going to be around anymore. You're not going to see my face again. I'm not coming back to protect you. It's on you to do this. Now, now who is most vulnerable to false teaching? Who is it? Who is, who is most, which individual? And I'm not going to name names, don't worry. But who amongst the church is most vulnerable to those who distort the truth? Well, it's those who are untaught. If you, if you are untaught, if you don't know the truth, you are most vulnerable uh, of, of, to this, the distortion. It's those who don't have accurate biblical knowledge. Perhaps those who've been neglected, who haven't been invested in. See, knowledge guards us from distortion of the truth. And so, because the church is God's treasure... Because it's at risk and there is a solution, Paul says the church is worth protecting. And one of the key layers of protections that Paul sets up, well, Jesus through Paul and Timothy and the other apostles, set up across the New Testament are properly appointed, selected and equipped leaders. 
Uh, now, you, if you've been in church for a little while, you might have picked up that I said leader, not some other word. I don't know what uh, denomination or church group you might have come out of. Uh, it's a bit of a hot topic. What do you call the leadership team in the church? Well, this is a really fascinating passage for that. Just have a look here on the screen who Paul invites. He says, okay, from my leaders, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. All the Presbyterians are saying, aha, it is elder. You know, we, we know it's elders. You go, oh, hang on a minute. Flick down to verse 28 and he's talking to these elders and he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Uh, now the Latin word for overseer is the bishop word. So bishop is also a biblical word. So which, which the, the, you've been made overseers. It, it gets better. Be shepherds of the flock of God, which he bought with his own blood. Uh, and that word shepherds, uh, the Latin word for shepherd is the word pastor. So in this one passage, we have the elders who are called overseers and told to be pastors, elder, overseer, pastor. Uh, what we learn here is it doesn't really matter what the particular title is. It's describing a, a role. Now, there are other places that list out all the qualifications for an overseer. That's how I call them now, because that's what we call our leadership team, overseers. Uh, but here, look at what Paul emphasises in the way he led and the way they then should, this group of leaders, should lead God's treasured possession, the church. Verse 18, he says, You know how I lived when I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. What we see Paul describing here is his lifestyle, his ministry was not professional. Now, when I say not professional, it's not that he wasn't good. Professional doesn't mean that you're good. There's some very good amateur people who at all sorts of things who are very good at what they do, but they're not professional. I think when I say not professional, uh, it would be if you had, a, say, a nurse come to change a dressing uh, and, you, and someone came and said, oh, how was the nurse? And they said, oh, they were very professional. Uh, you might be saying, oh, well, they, they, there was no chit-chat. Uh, they didn't stay for a cup of tea. Uh, they, she, she came in, very polite, did the job. Did the dressing, got out of there. Very, very professional. Now, I think sometimes uh, pastors, leaders, elders might slip into thinking, yeah, this is a job to do. This is an organisation. Uh, we've got a job to do. In, out, meetings, minutes, sign off. Very, very professional. Now, we do have to have meetings. We do have to have minutes. We do have to look after it. But the way Paul describes his ministry is that it is genuine. He, he serves with tears. In other places, he describes that he, he's, he's kept awake at night Worried, concerned, thinking about the people he's responsible for. That, that's the kind of attitude that Paul says should be uh, obvious in those who lead the church. And, and humble, humble, not lording it over, not saying, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm an overseer, thank you very much, I'm too good to be sweeping. No, no, humble, doing what needs to be done. Uh, read on in verse 20, 32. Uh, now he says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold of clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this comes up a couple of times in those other lists of qualifications for a leader of the church. 
not to be a lover of money, not to be in it for the money. Yeah, paid, made sure they're freed up, but not to love it, not to covet it, not to be jealous of it and want it. Uh, And there's all this character stuff that goes on with it. And I think the big theme that comes through this whole passage is that these leaders are to be proficient in teaching. Because that's the big thing is guard the flock, isn't it? Guard the flock. There's wolves coming in. They will distort the truth. So here it's kind of implied, but all over the passage, that they are to protect the church by, by their teaching. And it's explicit in the other passages that talk about the qualifications for the role of an overseer. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 2, uh, the, the overseer is to be able to teach. And in Titus chapter 1, ver- well, it's Titus 1 verse 9, he says this, the overseer, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. That's what he's describing here in Acts 20, isn't it? You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready. I'm not coming back. You've got no one coming in to clear up the mess, to correct false teachers. They will come up. You've got to be equipped for it. So is it just up to the overseers? Jeff and Ellis and Rob and myself, just, you know, that's us. You guys can sit back and tell us when we're not doing it well enough. Well, please remind us. Jeff mostly, I guess. Uh, No, remind remind us. But it's not just up to the overseers. It's everyone's job. First, by being part of the process of selecting appropriate leaders. That's the way we function here at Lake Mac Church. Uh, if you belong to the, uh, the church family, you can kind of loosely belong to the church family. You're here each week. Maybe you're on a roster in a kind of non-teaching role. But if you say, yeah, I want to make this my church home, <clears throat> you'll become a member, a formal member of Lake Mac Church. And part of becoming a member is that you get, to, you get to vote to approve or not approve incoming overseers. And that is important. That is crucial. It might not seem like such a big deal. And I'm so thankful that as, as we've put forward overseers, we've always had candidates who have said, yeah, these, these guys are great. We, we know them. We trust them. They're good. So they haven't really been big discussions. But if what Paul's saying here in Acts 20 is right, there will come a time. When those among you will come up and distort the truth. We, we need members of the church to help guard the gospel, the truth, to appoint properly suitable overseers. But it's not just the process of selecting appropriate leaders. See, see no Christian leads without their support of their congregation. Uh, whether it's by staying at a church or by voting, you, you, we need you here and on board in that. But the other part is uh, directly safeguarding others and safeguarding the truth. Paul makes this clear in the, the book of Romans where he says, well, he says what I could say confidently about you guys. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I was preparing myself. I thought, I can say that about my church. Isn't that a treasure? I'm so grateful. I can say that about you guys. And we need you. Uh, The overseers, you might be surprised, we don't have bugs in all the home groups. Uh, We can't listen into all the little conversations. We don't know what's going on in prayers and teaching and phone calls. That's up to us, plural. Use, I think we'd say, or y'all, if 
we're in Texas. It's up to us to safeguard the truth in that way, to protect the church. So the church is God's treasure, Paul says, bought with his own blood, but it's at risk. There are savage wolves. There's a solution, which is knowledge and teaching and declaring the whole counsel of God, and it is worth protecting. Now, what's putting it into practice going to look like for us? 2022 Lake Mac Church. Well, I've got sort of three things to work through. And the first is, it's going to mean treasuring what God treasures. One of the the beautiful themes of the Bible is that when you become a Christian, you don't join a club. uh, You don't just become a citizen or start working for a new boss. You're adopted by a heavenly father. Uh, When we baptise people, often we talk about the baptismal ceremony being like a a naming ceremony. Uh, And I reckon if we had an adopted child come into our family, when the adoption papers come through, uh, and that child got the Doyle last name, we would have a party. I don't know if we'd baptise them, but we'd have a party and we'd celebrate it. And that's the part of what being baptised is doing. It's saying, this person, they haven't just joined a club or started working for a new boss. They've joined a family. They are now children of the eternal God. And and when you become a child of God, you start taking on God's characteristics. Uh, It happens bit by bit by bit by bit over our lifetime. We, we, We get the sort of family resemblance to our heavenly father. We begin to love like he does, to have the passions that he has. And and so it means we need to actively work towards that. It, It often happens a little bit passively, But most of the time it happens actively as we pursue becoming like our Heavenly Father. And this is a way we can do that, is to treasure what God treasures. And God treasures the church. What was the purchase price for the church that God looked at and went, I'm paying that. His own blood. He loves the church. He died to sanctify a bride for himself. I think that's going to look like praying for the church. Yes, for individual Christians, keep doing that, for world things, but for the church, for the bride of Christ, for the family of believers that God has collected locally and globally. Pray for the church. Of course, it will mean giving time to the church, home group and our our Sunday services. But I think it will mean more than just showing up. It's kind of like the, the family member who's a little bit too excited about the family reunion. Uh, do you know who it is, the, the family member who are they, they're looking forward to it for years? Uh, they're probably you know, out there now stamping, I don't know, leather bookmarks with, you know, for the next reunion. They're really excited to get together for the family reunion. There's that segment of the family who can't wait to get together. And if you had a family reunion every six months, they would be there with bells on. And then there's the other people who are at the family reunion, mostly. You know, they, they happen every five or six years or however long, and they're there, maybe, as long as something else isn't on. Where do we fall on that continuum when it comes to church? Are we so excited? Are we treasuring it? Or are we, yeah, we're there, mostly. Where do we land? Are we treasuring what God treasures? That's the first thing we can do to put this into practice. The second is to invest in knowledge. Um, now, I think this, uh, this comes across in our culture. Uh, we, we are, in, in a way, we're a knowledge-based culture. But in another way, things are changing, especially in the Christian world, that kind of 
develops an attitude where someone will naively not value knowledge. They'll say even explicitly, look, I'm not a learner. I have more of a spiritual relationship with God. I'm, I'm not a learner. I, you know, so, yep, yep, you go do your studies. Good for you. You do you. But I'm not a learner. That's not something that the Bible holds up as an, as an option. Uh, I want to encourage you to be a learner. You might not naturally be an academic learner, but that does not mean you can't be a learner. That does not mean you can't invest in knowledge. Uh, I want to encourage you to, to learn as well as you can from sermons. Um, I've actually got some uh, uh, things to help us remind, remind of this. A little package. Uh, we've got another set of these coming. We're doing uh, Romans. Yep, that's right, Romans, uh, starting in uh, four weeks. Uh, this is a, a journaling Bible where it has a page of text and a page for notes. Uh, you might like taking notes. You might not like taking notes. Taking notes for me helps me remember. I very rarely go back and read them, but it helps me learn. It helps me focus. It helps me concentrate. I'd encourage you that if that's your thing, maybe consider picking up one of these, a journaling Bible. Take it to home group. Use it in your quiet times. Write down questions that come up, observations, and chase them down. Be a learner. Invest in knowledge. Get into daily Bible reading. If you're not uh, someone who gets into their Bible every day, I want to encourage you to make space for that in your life. It's the best thing you can do to safeguard yourself and your church. Investing in knowledge. Uh, I've got another book here called uh, Concise Theology. A uh, little book, not too big, written by J.I. Packer, a really uh, well-respected theologian. Uh, and, and what it has is it's got a different two or three pages on different subjects. Um, so there you go, three pages on the Trinity, the Trinity in three pages. Um, and and it breaks it up into subjects and it just helps you work through, well, what does the Bible say about? What does the Bible say about? I want to encourage you to grab one of those, Concise Theology, cheap little book, they're on special at the moment. Uh, I want to encourage you to do it with someone else. To tap someone in your home group, someone at church on the shoulder and say, hey, would you like to catch up once a week, once a fortnight, however regularly, and read together just a chapter. We'll talk about it. Will, will you learn with me? I always learn better with someone else. You could do that. Now, for both of those things, uh, and uh, for this little one, everything a child should know about God. If you've got kids in your life, whether it's your kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, kids you look after, Grab one of these if you haven't already. If you don't have kids, grab one and have a read through it. It's really helpful. Uh, again, it's like J.I. Packers, but it's one page with big text. Uh, and it just helps you get started. Now, for those three books, we've got a sign-up sheet um, just at the back of this room by the sound desk there. I'm going to do an order this week. I can get a better deal if we buy a whole bunch of them. So pop your name down. Tell me how many you'd like, uh, and, and we'll order them. We'll have them by next Sunday. But that's a way that we can invest in knowledge together. It's one of the best things we can do. Uh, and, and what that will do is it starts to grow your instincts. It starts to grow your senses. So that when something is said, whether it's said from the front, by me or someone else from the front, or whether it's said in a conversation or a prayer, your ears start to prickle. And you go, oh, why am I uncomfortable? That wasn't quite right. You will not develop those instincts if you don't know what God's word says. That's how we develop those senses. Almost always, as I said, those wolves, they're not saying the big, obvious stuff. It's subtle distortions. You, you need to do this to be saved. A bit of sin isn't that bad, or you don't have to give too much of your life to Jesus. 
be really cautious of the attitude that says, well, don't we all love Jesus? Can't we get along? Isn't that enough? That's not how God presents salvation or the Christian faith. Invest in knowledge. It's worth it. I want to end with, with this, I think, statement that Paul says, that God's church is worth giving your life for. What's for Paul? It was for Richard. God's church is worth giving your life for. It's worth giving your life to establish, to bring new people in. It's worth giving your life to mature and to grow. It's worth giving your life to protect, to help people not just become Christians, but stay Christians, to keep following him for a lifetime, right till the end. We talk about it as time and talent and treasure. They're the things in our lives. Will you give those things to the church? I would like you to consider giving 10% or more of your income to the church. Is there any way you could formally volunteer eight hours a week here at Lake Mac for 40 weeks of the year? Would you sign up to teaching a kids' church class? The same group of kids from leopard sharks through to piranhas for eight years investing in nurturing growing a group of kids. It could be any of those. It could be all of those. And there are countless more opportunities according to how God's gifted you. But whatever it looks like, let's do it because God's church is worth giving our lives for. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you and praise you that you have called us at great cost to yourself into your family. That you invite us into your family, not, not just on an individual basis to, to join in with brothers and sisters, co-heirs of Christ, that the church is described as this beautiful bride and we thank you for this treasured possession, the church, your people, who we are invited to belong to, to be treasured by you. And we pray that you would help us here at Lake Mac. Help us to, to spot the risks, to live out the solution, to give our lives, to protect and grow uh, and spread and increase the church. Please do that amongst us. I thank you, Father, for the church you have gathered here at Lake Mac. I thank you for the individuals, the people, the gifts. And I pray that you would help us to shine your life into this region, to bring more and more people into your treasured possession, the church. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we do have about three minutes, I believe, for questions. So I'm going to put my um, phone off airplane mode. Um, oh, yep, I'll grab another mic. Need a boomerang one we can throw. Oh, speedy Godzilla is in my wheelchair. Any questions? Liam tries to preach for a long time to get out of those questions. Absolutely. But, you know, Went too have fast a, please have some questions. That's all right. We're not going to labour it. Over to you, Mal. Oh, Tim, just in time. Okay. He's over here. Oh, see if you can remember it, Tim. Uh, you mentioned uh, like people distorting the truth. Yep. I was curious, like, uh, how do we go about lovingly ministering to people who may believe have been led astray by a distortion of the truth? Mm. 
Yeah, thank you, thank you, Tim. Uh, and I think you included the key word, which was lovingly. Uh, so we're told to speak the truth in love. So being a truth person is no excuse to be a be a jerk. You know, I, I think there's a kind of attitude that says, "Hey, I'm I'm just a truth teller. I'm just going to say it how it is," and they go around hurting people. Uh, that's that's no excuse. So gently with love. Uh, I think attitude's going to be the key thing. Um, it, I know for my, and I think I said this uh, a few weeks ago in response to a question, if in my head I want to rebuke someone, uh, it'll come out harsh. If in my head I want to restore someone, it's far more likely to come out gently. So if you've said something like, Jesus isn't God, and I think, oh, Tim needs rebuking, I'm, it's probably going to come across pretty harsh and unloving. But if I'm thinking, oh, I want to restore Tim, I want, I want, to, bring him, I want to bring him back into the truth, that's gonna, I'm going to go slower, try and be winsome. Uh, the other one, and Alan mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when he was preaching, is make the Bible your authority, not you. So to say, oh, you're wrong, let me tell you the truth. You say, hey, Tim, I heard you say that thing about Jesus not being God. I'd love to have a coffee with you and open up the Bible. Would you mind? You'll probably say, yeah, sure, if you're buying coffee. Uh, and then we'll open up the Bible and we'll read it and we'll say, look, this is what God says. So, so don't say, trust me, not that other person. That's no good. I've got no authority. You've got no authority. Hey, let's see, let's see what God says. But I think for, for me, if I think about restoring rather than rebuking, that help, I can still offer a rebuke then, but I'm doing it because I want to see that person come back rather than just I want to deliver, deliver the rebuke.